This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Claire Sistanovich read her story, Different People, from the January 30th, 2023 issue of the magazine. Sistanovich's debut story collection, Objects of Desire, which came out in 2021, was a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. She was named a 5 Under 35 honoree by the National Book Foundation in 2022. Now here's Claire Sistanovich. Different People When Gilly was young, she lied to her diary. It was not a toy diary. She had dutifully filled several of those already, notebooks in girlish colors, with ostentatious locks and miniature keys. This new diary had a dull brown cover and no means of protecting itself. It was an object she could imagine becoming an artifact. She wrote in smooth black ink that glittered mysteriously until it dried, and she chose her words carefully, the longer the better. There were some words, squeezed to fit in the narrow space between lines, much narrower than she was used to, that she wasn't sure how to pronounce. She wrote for an audience. She was 12 years old. The problem was that her life was uneventful. She had a mother and a father and a backyard, and although she didn't have a dog or a cat, she had been permitted to have a bird. It had a pale blue breast. She said breast without embarrassment, or tried to, because it was childish not to, and black and white feathers that looked like an elegant houndstooth coat. These colors were much better than the bright green and raucous yellow of other parakeets, but there still wasn't much to write about a bird. In a hundred years, when Gilly was dead, or so old that her skin had turned to paper and all her words to pure, precious truth, no one would want to read about cleaning out the birdcage, no matter how much she had thought about it. Dread consumed her for days in advance of the task, Disgust overpowered her as she swept the small, hard pellets into the trash. The bird, released from its cage, sometimes sat on Gilly's head, its pale, bony feet pressing into her scalp. So she made stuff up. Her inventions were subtle and artful. She didn't become an orphan or contract an unexplained illness. She didn't escape the tree-lined street where nothing ever happened. In fact, Gilly mostly didn't lie about herself at all. That was harder than it looked. But it was easy, she discovered, to lie about her parents, because when she really thought about it, she realized that she barely knew them. Of all the injustices of being a child, this might have been the greatest. They had known her for her entire life. They knew things about her that she, limited by a small and porous memory, never would. But Gilly had witnessed only a fraction of theirs. In writing, she referred to her parents as Peter and Lisa, On the first page of her diary, she reported that late at night, when she was supposed to be asleep, she could hear them fighting downstairs. In the next entry, she wrote that the fighting, which had begun as whispering, had escalated. Now they were yelling. 
None of it was true. All Gilly could hear from upstairs was the sound of the piano, which Peter played every night. Popular, easy songs. Stuff he remembered from his childhood or had picked up listening to the radio. Nothing classic or classical. He wasn't very good. He was a doctor, not a pianist. But he said that music was a universal language. You didn't have to get it just right. Sometimes he'd sing, too. Lisa never sang, but every now and then, Gilly could make out her voice, cutting through the music, probably to ask a difficult, profound question. Her questions were always difficult and profound, or to read something aloud from the book in her lap. Gilly's lies were unsettling to think about, but as soon as she started writing, they were exciting. She described what it was like to lie in bed, swallowed up by the dark, bombarded by the sounds of conflict. And later, when she actually was lying in bed, the real dark seemed different because it contained the fake dark, too. It seemed deeper, stranger. But what would they fight about? Whatever she made up had to be believable. There was a difference between invention, a functional fantasy pieced together from reality's spare parts, and pure fiction, silly stories that faded as soon as they were finished, like even the most pleasurable dreams. So Gilly studied her parents intently. Once she started paying attention, it became clear that they avoided disagreement as carefully as she sought it out. They took turns cooking and cleaning and even mowing the lawn, something Gilly had only ever seen men do. They made polite, open-ended inquiries. How was your day? When Peter told jokes and Lisa didn't laugh, she apologized. Sorry, she'd say. I don't get it. Peter was a doctor who took care of very sick kids. This sounded like a serious job. But Lisa was the truly serious one. That was what Gilly liked best about her. She understood the proper weight of things. Lisa was a philosopher. There were a lot of dads who were doctors, but Gilly had never met another mom who was a philosopher. Years ago, when Gilly had asked Peter if the sick kids ever died, he'd avoided answering. But Lisa had looked at Peter and then at Gilly and said, very matter-of-factly, yes, they do. That had ignited one of the few real fights between her parents that Gilly could remember, and she had been at its center. The question was whether she could handle the truth. In the end, Gilly made certain strategic elisions in her diary. She never specified what exactly her parents were fighting about, because she was less interested in imagining the cause of their conflict than in imagining its effects. She had heard of broken homes, and now she pictured herself inside one. Crumbling walls, shattered windows, a crack that split the house along invisible seams. Around the time that Gilly reached the middle of her diary, where she could see the white thread that kept the whole thing together, she attended her first funeral. The old man who lived next door had died just a few weeks shy of his hundredth birthday. His name was Stu. Gilly hadn't actually seen him in a long time because he'd been bedridden for the last several years of his life. But even then, his presence detectable only in the movement of curtains or the glow of a lamp, or in the coming and going of the mail, she had thought of him as the secret keeper of the neighborhood. Not any particular secret, something bigger than that, some old and essential truth. What she remembered most about Stu was the way that his body had seemed to unveil itself as it declined, the thick blue veins that emerged on the tops of his hands and ensnared his ankles the spotted skin that appeared as his hair got thinner and thinner, like a cotton ball pulled slowly apart until you could see straight through it. Gilly had assumed that she would see Stu one final time, nestled inside a casket 
wearing his fanciest clothes. So she was disappointed, standing solemnly in the pews of the church, to learn that there would be no coffin at all. On paper programs distributed at the start of the service, there was only one image, a black and white portrait of Stu in his army uniform. His cheeks had been tinted an implausible pink. Most of the funeral service was devoted to some version of this man, loyal soldier, loving husband, hard worker, good father, who bore little resemblance to the man Gilly thought she'd known. It was not a tearful or even a somber occasion. People were there, it was said, and then repeated, to celebrate a life, not to mourn a death. This, too, in Gilly's opinion, was a disappointment. If those final years of Stu's life had seemed to approach something like a revelation, his translucent skin, his frank and not always appropriate remarks, now everything that had seemed on the brink of being discovered was being covered back up, the fragile, honest core of him retreating into the broad-shouldered frame of a solid family man. And after all that, they would literally bury him. Gilly tried not to think about it. Lisa drove them home. She wasn't a better driver than Peter, but she was a worse passenger. While they were stopped at a red light, Lisa said she hadn't realized that Stu had such a big family, such a full life. Full of what, Gilly said from the back seat. She was small for her age, and the seat belt cut uncomfortably into the side of her neck. When people are in that much pain, it's hard to imagine what they were like without it, her mother continued. He was in pain? Why had no one told her that? Longer lives aren't necessarily better lives, Lisa said. Well, Peter said. Well, what? We're making huge strides in end-of-life care, and we'll only keep making them. Medicine is advancing faster than ever. But striding where? Advancing toward what? Lisa asked. Do we even want to get where we're going? There was an edge in her voice, which made Gilly lean forward. The seatbelt locked. Personally, I don't, Lisa continued. If I make it to 80, that's enough. Lisa. Peter turned around to look at Gilly, who was still straining against the seatbelt. When Lisa glanced at her in the rear view mirror, she stopped struggling. She wanted to look calm, composed. There was nothing more juvenile than the fear of death. If you can't ask to be born, Lisa said, looking back at the road, shouldn't you be allowed to ask to die? You know it's more complicated than that. Doctors take an oath. The rest of us don't. Peter stared out the window where there was nothing Gilly thought worth staring at. Identical telephone poles, the same trees planted again and again, just the right amount of space between each house. But imagine if we did, he said, pressing his nose against the glass the way a child might. Imagine if you had to look every single person in the eye and say what doctors say. We did everything we could. By the time Gilly's parents said they had something important to tell her, she had almost forgotten about the diary. She had written in it haphazardly. Sometimes, remembering the notebook after an idle period, she would return to it with fresh resolve, writing regularly, usually honestly. But soon resolve would turn into routine, and routine bored her. The entries would get shorter and sloppier, and stop altogether. One day, Gilly had taken the diary off the shelf and put it in a drawer, because the sight of it seemed to accuse her. Of what exactly? She wasn't sure. Her parents summoned her to the living room. They sat on the couch, perched on the edge of the cushions, close but not touching. There were two chairs across from the couch, for the sake of symmetry, and Gilly was aware, even before she understood what was happening, that no matter which chair she chose, she would be throwing something off balance. 
She hovered between them for a few seconds and sat down opposite Lisa. Peter went first. He emphasized the logistics. Lisa was moving into her own house. Well, her own apartment, but it was a spacious apartment. It will be good for everyone, he said, which doesn't mean it won't be hard for everyone, too. He spoke slowly, and when he was finished, he looked at Lisa expectantly, which meant it was her turn. It meant they were following a script. Peter nodded while Lisa spoke, the way you would nod at someone who was practicing her lines, who has finally got them right, or almost right, close enough. That made Gilly angry. In general, she avoided anger. Unlike sadness or even fear, anger wasn't something you could think about. You could only feel it. Anger was like being trapped, like being in a crowded pool or a packed elevator, except the thing trapping you was you. Say it like you mean it, Gilly said. Her voice was loud and high, practically a whine. Gilly, her mother said. Honey, her dad said. There was a long silence. Eventually, Peter said something and Lisa repeated it, something they'd already said, like, we'll get through this. Something that was easy to say and hard to believe. Gilly stormed out of the room, which was the sort of thing angry people did, but already her anger was turning into something else. When she got to the top of the stairs, she waited, listening for what they would say now that the performance was over. There was just more silence and the usual mysterious creaking of the house, which sounded ominous but wasn't. Peter had explained it to her. The temperature rose and fell, and what sounded like moaning or whispering was just the house contracting and expanding. The house didn't see everything, didn't know anything. Gilly closed the door to her bedroom and took the diary out of the drawer. She didn't want to open it. A childish thought. If she didn't read it, she might not have written it. If she hadn't done anything, she wouldn't have to undo anything. No guilt, no pain, no panic, no feeling at all. She made herself do it. She read from the first page to the last page. She had pretended to be an adult, but pretending was no longer a game or a lie or a choice. She had wanted something to happen, and now it had. Gilly became two people. Her time was divided exactly down the middle, because Peter and Lisa believed, above all, in being fair. Half the time she was one person, and half the time she was another. It was possible that no one else noticed the difference. She didn't try to explain it, and she didn't write it down, because she didn't write anything down anymore. She didn't want to remember. She just wanted to pay attention. The more you paid attention, the more people you became. A different person in different places, a different person on different days. And she was the only one who knew them all. Soon after the divorce, Lisa got a job at university in another city. Good jobs were hard to find, and this one wasn't bad. It took three hours to drive to the city. She would leave on Mondays, return on Fridays. When Lisa told her the news, Gilly said she would go with her. She was a teenager now. They could buy a new house, pick a new school. Well, Peter said, looking hurt, confused. No, Lisa said. Later, Peter told Gilly that it was okay to be angry at Lisa. He called Lisa your mom, which made her sound like a character in a book that Gilly had read and he hadn't. But Gilly wasn't angry. She admired Lisa. She, at least, was becoming a new person. Peter seemed a little sadder and a little fatter. His shirts were tighter and often came untucked. But for the most part, he was the same. All his jokes were old jokes. He knew five recipes, which he repeated in the same order every week. The only real thing that had changed was that he'd stopped playing the piano 
And even that didn't seem so important. He'd never been a serious musician. He watched reruns on TV instead. Sometimes he didn't remember that he'd already seen the shows, unless Gilly reminded him. She spent every weekend with Lisa. They went out to restaurants, and Gilly learned how to pronounce the Italian names of pastas. She pretended that she liked anchovies and mushrooms and cheese that oozed. She pretended for long enough that eventually she didn't have to. She really did like them. Lisa gave her difficult books to read. They took walks in the neighborhood, and Lisa told Gilly that they were famous philosophers who believed that walking was necessary for thinking. On some walks, they hardly exchanged a word, which was okay. Gilly tried to summon big, interesting ideas in case Lisa asked what she was thinking about, but Lisa never did. Every evening, Lisa's phone rang and she left the room before answering. Gilly didn't ask if it was a man calling. At Lisa's age, was it still called a boyfriend? Because she knew that if she did, Lisa would tell her the truth without holding anything back. Gilly assumed that the man was also a philosopher. How else could they talk for so long? She had a clear picture of him in her head, tall and noble-looking, with wiry limbs and wiry eyebrows. During one of Lisa's phone calls, Gilly realized that she was picturing an actor from a movie she'd seen years before. A stupid, heartwarming movie, the kind that gets called family-friendly. After that, she tried to change the picture, to make the man shorter or uglier or just more original, but it didn't work. Because the picture of the man existed only in her head, because she couldn't get rid of it, it seemed to Gilly as though he came with her wherever she went. Every Sunday evening, he returned with her to Peter's house. He surveyed the scene, the table of unread newspapers, the sink of unwashed dishes, the glass that slipped out of Peter's hand and shattered on the floor. It was a cheap, ordinary glass. Lisa drank wine and glasses with delicate stems, but Peter drank nothing but water, lots and lots of it. The man watched Peter spring into action. No bare feet in the kitchen. He heard the oblivious roar of the vacuum and watched the bird bang against the top of its cage until the noise finally stopped. He saw the tiny piece of glass that got stuck in Gilly's heel anyway, too small to see. If she squeezed the rough skin in the right place, a perfect bead of blood bloomed on the surface. One Friday, Lisa called at the last minute to say that she wouldn't be back in town. She no longer said back home until the next morning. She had to stay late at the library. They sounded like a lie, the kind of excuse that kids use on their parents, not the other way around. No problem, Gilly said. She unpacked her already packed bag. The library was Lisa's favorite place on campus. She had described it to Gilly in detail. A huge limestone structure designed to look like a church, with desks instead of pews, with stained glass windows that depicted scholars, not saints. The architecture, Lisa explained, was a kind of joke. At universities, everyone agreed that knowledge was the only thing worth worshipping. The local public library, where Gilly's books came from, was a dingy building filled with the rubbery smell of steam radiators. Its display table, featuring paperbacks with embossed titles and lurid covers, did not inspire awe. And awe was why Gilly secretly liked real churches, old ornate ones with gilded altars and cushioned kneelers for praying. She hardly ever went inside that kind of church, for Stu's funeral, for a cousin's wedding, for a piano recital, and she never told anyone that she wanted to. Gilly didn't understand the feeling that overtook her there, and afterward, she was sometimes ashamed of it, 
the way her ribs seemed to expand like the vaulted ceiling, the way certain fragile ideas could stay aloft in the dim, cavernous space. Lisa would have called that getting carried away. She was interested in religion, like all ideas that was worth considering, but interest was the opposite of belief. It turned out that opposites like that were everywhere. Her mother's speaking voice was the opposite of her father's singing voice. Owning a bird was the opposite of wanting a bird. These were opposites that politely masked their differences, that delicately avoided the uncrossable border between them. The image of Stu in his army uniform was the opposite of the image of Stu in Gilly's head. Reading over her diary was the opposite of spilling herself onto its pages, of thinking that the self was spillable instead of containable, of not understanding what a terrible, permanent mess it could make. Peter ordered pizza for dinner, a treat. It arrived cold, orange grease thickening on its surface. He asked Gilly questions about school, her teachers, her friends, her goals. What's on your mind? Gilly shrugged. She wiped her fingers on a napkin and pushed away her plate. The next morning, instead of waiting in the car as she usually did, Lisa came inside. All the way to the kitchen, which meant that she, too, saw the newspapers and the dishes and the birdcage that hadn't been cleaned in a long time. The bird was sleeping, its neck twisted awkwardly so that it could bury its face in its feathers. Asleep, it looked like it didn't have a head. Peter and Lisa acted normally around each other. They talked gravely about a story they'd seen in the news, a natural disaster on another continent. It meant the same thing to both of them because it didn't really mean anything to either of them. Unimaginable, they agreed. Gilly would have preferred it if they'd argued. While her parents discussed global events, she watched the bird wake up. It had a head now. It looked around the room. Did it notice anything different? It lifted one foot, put it back down, lifted the other. This was a familiar ritual, which Peter called the bird's little dance. Alone, Gilly and her father often imitated the dance, but in Lisa's presence, it seemed ridiculous. The kitchen seemed crowded. It wasn't big enough for her dad and her mom and the person she was with her dad and the person she was with her mom, not to mention for the man, or the picture of the man. Her parents insisted that she clean the cage before leaving. Right now? Gilly saw Peter waver. Right now, Lisa said. They left her by herself in the kitchen. Soon as Gilly unlatched the door, the bird flew out and settled in the fruit bowl, gripping an enormous navel orange. She cleaned half-heartedly. Not for the first time, she regretted ever asking for a bird. Worse than that, begging for one. She vowed never to beg for anything again. It was only when she stood up with a dustpan of bird poop Bird shit, she corrected herself. But Gilly realized the screen door to the backyard was propped open. Her first instinct was the normal one, to drop the dustpan and slam the door and avoid disaster. But she hesitated just long enough that desire overtook instinct. She stood very still. She and the bird looked at each other, bold, insolent looks. Go ahead, Gilly said. The bird's head swiveled back and forth like a toy. When it showed no sign of moving from its perch, Gilly resumed her tasks, but now she took her time. She was slow and deliberate. She wiped down every surface inside the cage. The bird stared at her the whole time, clutching the orange. They were still locked in this contest when Peter and Lisa came back into the room. 
They looked from the bird to the screen door, but said nothing. The bird went back in its cage, and Gilly followed Lisa out of the house. Lisa's apartment was not as spacious as she'd promised, but it was furnished sparely and most of the walls were still blank, which made it feel expansive, something that could become another thing. That day, Gilly and Lisa did what they always did, read and walked and ordered tagliatelle. Ribbons dyed black with squid ink, mixed up with the taut rubber bands of the squid themselves. After dinner, they read some more. Any minute now, the phone might ring. Gilly studied Lisa for signs of anticipation. What was she waiting for? What was she hoping for? But Lisa was absorbed in her book. It looked a lot like the one she had loaned Gilly that afternoon. A volume with an anonymous blue cover and modest block letters, once gold, now yellow, on the spine. She told Gilly that the book had changed her life. It was printed in a tiny font on delicate paper, thin enough that if Gilly held it up to the light, she could see right through. So far, she hadn't understood a single word. The pages were hard to turn quickly, folding over on themselves and threatening to tear. She started turning two at a time or ten at a time, however many clung together. The paper made a rustling sound, but Lisa didn't look up. The phone didn't ring. Gilly skipped whole chapters. She had meant to release her anger this way, but now it gained momentum. She paused at a dog-eared page, a page that had mattered to someone else. There was faint pencil in the margins, but she didn't bother reading what had been marked, what had spoken its hidden meaning to a stranger and would not reveal itself to her. She closed the book with a clap. And still, Lisa didn't look up, didn't ask what was wrong, didn't even see that anything could be wrong. Who is he? Gilly demanded. The silence broke like glass. Lisa finished the sentence she was reading and marked her place with a finger. It really was a place, somewhere she emerged from, eyes glassy, gaze abstracted. Who? That man. Gilly realized as she said it that she had never actually heard the voice on the other end of the line. She had imagined a deep voice, long, thoughtful pauses, while he searched for exactly the right word. She had imagined heated arguments, the good kind, not about events, but about ideas, not about your life or our life, but about life itself. Lisa tilted her head to one side. The bird did this too, which made it seem human, skeptical. What's on your mind, Peter would say. When he asked the bird, it was supposed to be funny. There's no man, is there, Gilly said. Lisa laughed, a gentle laugh, the way you laugh at a child who's made a joke without meaning to. I don't get it, Gilly could have said, but she didn't. Lisa looked down and lifted her finger, picking up right where she'd left off. Gilly opened her book, flipped to the first page, and tried to start again. That was Claire Sostanovich reading her story, Different People. This is her fourth story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Gary Steingart reads Omakase by Waiki Wang. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.
from PRX.